Welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. In each episode, I speak with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheat Beat podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And leave us a review while you're there so others can find the show too. Welcome to the inaugural Ask an Expert episode of the WSU Wheat Beat podcast. In December, we asked our listeners to submit questions for this special episode, and we invited two experts to answer those questions. Our two experts today are Dr. Haiying Tao and Dr. Dave Huggins. Haiying is an assistant professor of soil fertility and residue management in the Department of Crop and Soil Sciences. She received her Ph.D. in soil science from the University of Connecticut, M.S. in agronomy from China Agricultural University, and B.S. in agronomy and B.S. minor in agricultural economics from China Agricultural University. Her current research and extension focus on soil fertility and crop residue management, soil health, digital agriculture, land application of manure, nutrient management planning. Dr. Dave Huggins is a USDA ARS soil scientist and research leader of the Northwest Sustainable Agroecosystems Research Unit in Pullman, Washington. He obtained his PhD at WSU and has been working with conservation farming systems and precision agriculture for 39 years. His research specialties include soil carbon sequestration, nitrogen use efficiency, and soil health. Hello, Haiying. Hi, Drew. Hello, Dave. Hi, hi, Drew. <laughs> so we um, we asked our audience, uh, our listeners, to submit questions back in December. We got a total of about ten questions, and um, nine of those ten were soil related. So I thought we'd get uh, our two soil experts in here today and and focus in on on soils. And there's tangential things like cropping systems it's attached to that and a little, actually one we control question so so I think uh, we have a, a wider variety of things but mostly related to soil so I, I'll kick off uh, this one and uh, this first question's a, a cropping systems question and um, I'm going to turn this to you Dave to give us the first response and then see if Haying has anything uh, she'd like to add but um, the question is, and first it starts off with a, a bit of a statement. Um, a popular cropping system in the Palouse is a three-year continuous crop rotation. Many growers that practice this plant winter wheat the first year, spring wheat the second, followed by either a legume or barley the third year. The short rotation has exacerbated several issues that plague growers, including various soil-borne diseases and devastating weed resistance. A longer rotation would help to aid growers in managing these issues, in the long run, it would diminish the effects of these issues on their crops. If a longer rotation were to be implemented by, by farmers, what would you advise that rotation to be and why? And are there any problems you can foresee this new rotation having? And if so, what? Yeah, it's a great question, Drew, and one that is in the minds of, of many people, not just farmers, but researchers alike. And, and it's not a new question because this is something that we've been grappling with for, you know, since we started farming the Palouse in terms of what crops to grow. And I was just 
thinking about some of the history of our cropping systems. And they kind of go hand in hand with some of the changes that we've had in terms of reduced till and direct seed systems too, in order to try to accommodate the system and try to address some of the issues you just mentioned. I was recalling back in the 70s when a winter wheat spring pea was a dominant crop rotation. Of course, that included uh, some pretty intensive tillage. But as we started to move towards a, a direct seed or no-till systems and reduced till systems, then we recognized that we needed to spread the rotation out further in order to address some of the 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 pathology issues, the disease issues like cephalosporium stripe, as well as some of the, the weed issues like uh, downy brome, et cetera. And some of the first research that addressed this was actually conducted by Dr. Frank Young, now retired, uh, but he had an IPM project uh, where they actually looked at a three-year rotation of winter wheat, spring barley, spring peas, as compared to a winter wheat pea rotation. And that was one of the first ones um, that was analyzed by Dr. Doug Young, actually an ag economist, and, and looked profitable from the perspective of, of a rotation that would work for us and also kind of expand that rotation to address some of the weed and, and, and disease issues. And so, you know, and you actually look at the crops that farmers grow, and now we have data that actually shows what gets grown every year. If you look at the National Ag Statistical Service, they have what's called a cropland data layer. It actually shows what crops were grown on a 30 meter, that's about 100 foot, on a 100 foot basis, okay, throughout the region, actually throughout the United States. And so that comes every year. And when you start looking at the crops that are grown currently in the annual cropping region of the Palouse, you see that it's, well, it's predominantly winter wheat. And, uh, you know, you look at the percentages and farmers are still probably 40% or more winter wheat. So it kind of calls into the into the account that are we really practicing rotation or more crop sequence kinds of, of strategies here? And really, farmers are looking at commodities that are going to you know be profitable for them, and so they tend to grow winter wheat as often as they can, <laughs> and sometimes until they start running into issues with things like uh, some of the weed and disease issues, and then they'll they'll start to mix it up a bit in order to help manage those. So to me, it really comes down to having tools in the toolbox, you know, different crops that we can have that are available and hopefully profitable, which has also been a real issue with a lot of our alternative crops, having actual crops in the toolbox that are profitable that we can mix it up with to address the various issues that are often unique for every darn farm. Um, you'll want to go in and be able to have different options in terms of how to manage those scenarios, those different issues that you have, and uh, also to respond to various various you know prices, et cetera. So, so to me, it becomes important to have a diversity of options that we might have that we can basically use in order to manage everything from a short-term economic perspective right on through to some of the, the weed and disease issues. And, you know, winter wheat's not going to go away, I don't think, for us. That's a, a really profitable, well, that's our most profitable crop for the most part, and that's why we see it grown so often. Some crops that do really well afterwards in direct seed systems, we've seen, and this is looking at a sequence perspective, uh, garbs tend to do really well after high residues. So if we're starting to look at some of the some of the, you know, uh, basically the, the yields we're getting now, um, 
uh, winning, you know, yield contests in the United States. You're looking at uh, yields, you know, in the highest producing areas of approach, starting to approach uh, 200 bushels. I mean, it's incredible. And of course, that produces all kinds of residue. And this is a challenge, of course, for subsequent crops, you know, and, and options from the standpoint of, of tillage, et cetera, and direct seed systems. But a couple crops that do really well, that tend to like high le- residue loads, this is where we get into the sequence thing. And it's it's kind of managing the, the or thinking about the residue loads, et cetera, are crops like garbs and uh, spring canola for us. They both do well under high residue situations and under direct seed situations under high residue conditions. So those are kind of sequences uh, that are worth looking at. Um, also, if you're looking at winter wheat, it's by far done the best in terms of a sequence following uh, some of our pulse crops like winter, like, sorry, like lentils, peas, uh, garbs again. Um, one of the reasons is because those pulse crops just use less water and there's more stored water in the soil that's carried over for that winter wheat crop. And so we tend to see um, we tend to see some advantages there as compared to uh, other crops like spring wheat or barley that use more water. And consequently, then um, uh, you're starting off with a little bit less of a profile in terms of, of stored soil water going into that winter wheat uh, sequence. And so, you know, I think... Coming up with a rotation, I, uh, I'm, I don't think there's any magic here, in terms of, in terms of what might be out there that you can take a look at. But there, what I'd like to see though in the future, and there's some progress here from the standpoint of, of uh, current research looking at. I'd like to see more winter options. Okay, so winter peas is one, but there's a, a lot of winter options from our, our from our spring crop counterparts for from everything from oats to barley uh, to peas to lentils etc and I'd like to see that expanded because um, quite frankly uh, we can we have those have a higher yield potential for us in our Palouse region and it gives us a competitive advantage you know in terms of other regions we can grow winter crops here I'd like to see more winter crops in our portfolio <laughs> um, otherwise uh, there's exciting uh, movement in terms of looking at uh, intercropping systems as well and that might be a future thing that we look at in terms of of trying to diversify our systems and that might be helpful from the standpoint of addressing some of the weed and disease issues as well uh, so I'd like to see that uh, uh, um, from a research perspective move forward and I'll just mention to say too that from our units perspective uh, we're now in the process of advertising for a cropping systems agronomist so one of their charges will be uh, to to pursue some of these kinds of alternative uh, uh, alternatives or developing more alternatives basically for us in terms of cropping systems you mentioned you know the the money maker is winter wheat, and you want uh, a lot of growers want to grow that as often as possible. I know from a weed control standpoint, being out of a, a certain crop for two years at least really has a rotational benefit. Um, you know, longer might be better, but then the economics become become an issue. Do we have those couple other crops that you could insert between winter wheat crops when you wanted to deal with um, a disease or weed issue? Yeah, good question, Drew. And and again, you know, this has been a real issue for us historically because many of our alternative crops aren't haven't been in some cases profitable at all. There was kind of, you know, treading water in terms of the economics of those, and that is a question that comes up every year. And so, yeah, we do have spring crop options. Um, you know, everything from from if you want to start 
you know, spooling together rotations. It's it's kind of a, a hand waving exercise a little bit in terms of what that might look like. Uh, but uh, things that we've been looking at is replacing some of our spring wheat with spring canola, and this is really to address some of the Italian ryegrass issues. And that's been one of the management tools that we've used effectively to try to to put the sequences together. So that was a winter wheat, spring canola, and then we went to garbs and then back to to winter wheat in that scenario. Um, we also have research that goes from winter wheat to garbs to winter wheat, then back to canola again. So it's kind of a four-year rotation, but emphasizing the winter crop in there. Um, you can probably poke holes in that, too, from the standpoint of various options uh, or, or issues that you're going to have to, to grapple with. Again, a lot of those issues tend to be unique for every farm, and and his, you know your history is out there in terms of, of trying to look at what might work for you. So um, I, I know... Um one, another part of this question was how might this rotation be different in a conventional system versus a no-till system? And I, I know when I was in Nebraska, um, if you had tillage in the system, uh, the rotation wasn't quite as critical to weed control as it was if you were in a no-till system. So I want, do you see the same? So do you need to look at rotations differently in a no-till system than in a conventional till system in your opinion? Yeah, Drew, that's definitely the case. And, and, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, we started looking at those three-year rotations to begin with and going from a two-year to a three-year rotation was because we were reducing tillage and going to no-till systems. And we had to to basically come up with other ways to manage those weeds besides, you know, having the tillage element in there. And we still see that today. And, you know, I think some of the the barriers we still have in direct seed systems are what to do after winter wheat. And we mentioned the winter wheat, spring wheat um, rotation. Well, it's tough to have spring wheat in there when you've got, you know, tons and tons of residue to fight in the spring. And those residues are keeping the soils cold and wet. <laughs> and you and you want to get in there as early as possible, you know, in terms of, of, of planting a spring wheat. And quite frankly, we're going to be suboptimal with respect to temperatures that are favorable for spring wheat uh, under those conditions. So everything that we can do, there's all kinds of reasons to do tillage under that type of scenario in terms of of, uh, of tillage that allows us to get onto those fields a little bit earlier. And, uh, and though under long-term no-till, I will say that there's circumstances as those soils improve, infiltration improves, et cetera, where we're seeing that we're able to get on those those soils a little bit earlier than we thought we could. But we still have colder soils for the most part under those uh, direct seed systems that is suboptimal for going in early and planting something like uh, spring wheat. So I see that as a, as a, as a real almost barrier from the standpoint of, of trying to do no-till or kinds of systems or direct seed systems under those circumstances. Easier, much easier to plant spring canola in a lot of ways, or uh, spring garbs. Okay, Haiyang, you you uh, in addition to your soil fertility work, uh, do a lot of work in residue management. Do you? How do you see um, this issue playing out? Do you have anything to add to what Dave said, or do you you have something you uh, you take exception to to what Dave said? Um, I just want to add some um, nutrient management component to the. Uh, diversifying crop rotations. Um, when you include legume crops in crop rotation, uh, actually uh, is beneficial for nutrient management because legumes can fix nitrogen and require very little nitrogen applications. That is not 
only beneficial to farmers' um, cost in fertilizer applications, but also is beneficial to the soil health because with reduced fertilizer applications, especially nitrogen applications, um, you know, the, the nitrogen application impact on soil health is reduced. So with soil conservation um, point of view, including legume crops in the crop rotation is beneficial. Um, as far as um, an, another aspect of soil conservation, for example, um, residue cover on the soil surface to prevent uh, soil loss um, it really depends on where you are and um, the yield of uh, yield potential of, of the crops in the locations where your um, cereal crops um, produce heavy amount of crop residue, um, including uh, legume crops that produce less of um, less of the uh, crop residue. Maybe is uh, it helps with um, decomposition of heavy crop residue. But if you are in the locations where you don't produce a, a lot of uh, crop residue, um, including um, legumes uh, in the rotation will even reduce further of your total amount of biomass uh, that can be left on the soil surface, which um, is uh, could be uh, including some negative impact to the soil conservation in terms of soil loss. Okay, I, th I think this is a topic we could probably spend the entire uh, episode on because uh, there are so many uh, components to crop rotation. But uh, let's move on to our next question so we can get through through these. Our next question I'm going to uh, give to you, Haiying, because it's uh, dealing with big data. And as part of the Farmers Network, you uh, have some experience dealing with big data. The question is, I would like to hear about whether and how big data, that is analytics of rainfall patterns, water cycles, fertilizer requirements, satellite imagery, etc., is being used in the Palouse. Microsoft's Farm Beats program or Bayer's digital farming subsidiary are two examples, but would like to hear how neighbors are actually collecting data from these sources and their equipment and implementing the results, resulting outputs. Uh, many farmers have GPS and yield monitors that are mounted on the combine that allow them to collect yield data on the go. The yield monitor can produce uh, very powerful yield maps that farmers can use in many aspects of decision-making. Um, I know some farmers and their field agronomists have been using yield maps, historical yield maps, to produce zone maps, and those farmers have variable-read um, application equipment, can then use these zone maps to uh, guide their nutrient applications, um, at different rates for different zones within a field. And some farmers have protein monitors uh, that they can mount on the, on the combine and collect uh, green protein concentrations at, um, on the go when they harvest. The protein maps is also a very um, powerful data uh, piece of data that farmers can use to visualize green protein concentration on the go and to learn 
where they did or did not have sufficient amount of nitrogen during the growing season to produce protein concentration that they want. And when you add, when you have both yield monitors and protein monitors, you you have this both uh, information on yield and protein at any given location of the field and put these two pieces of information together, you can calculate um, the nitrogen removal from green harvest as well as total nitrogen uptake at any given location of the field, which um, is a powerful piece of information that farmers can use to get feedback uh, for their nitrogen management practices. And then they can also use this information to produce uh, zone maps for a green removal um, nitrogen removal from grain harvest and uh, nitrogen uptake during the growing season. And then you use this information to fine tune nitrogen management for future at um, any given location of your field. But as far as I know, there are not many farmers have protein monitors. I think we need to provide farmers with more information on the benefit in agronomics, in economics of purchasing this equipment um, and the, the, um, the benefit that they can get from using this equipment for decision making. And um, with that information, maybe it's more encouraging for farmers to adapt this kind of technology. Um, as far as remote sensing imagery, um, remote sensing imageries are now more available than ever uh, before. And you can get remote sensing imagery using cameras mounted on UAVs, mounted on airplanes, and you can get um, high resolution, high revisiting frequency of um, satellite imagery at um, lower cost now than before. Um, and with this remote sensing images, you can calculate many different um, vegetation indices. Uh, for example, NDVI and NDRE, in which most uh, farmers and consultants are very much familiar with. And using um, these indices, you can incorporate this data into your decision making. So uh, the NDVI and NDRE are very well correlated with crop yield and uh, chlorophyll con content in the uh, biomass. Uh, with this good relationship, you know that you can use uh, remote sensing imagery to predict how much uh, nitrogen is taken up by, by your crop, and so you can predict the yield. And then you can use this information in the decision making. I know uh, a few farmers have been working with their consultants um, using the remote sensing imagery to produce zone maps. But I think Using those zone maps for guiding uh, variable rate applications, there's still some way to go. I know there are some research that um, were done in the plus area and found very good relationship between um, remote sensing imagery and yield and nitrogen uptake. But um, are these relationship consistent? Um, are they consistent across different uh, different um, 
cultivars are they consistent across different soils and agroecological zones, um, and how do we tra translate the remote sensing maps into the maps for guiding variable rate applications, I think we need um, a little more research and especially we need tools um, that are convenient for farmers to use this information and translate in this information into uh, manageable decision makings, uh, you know, that farmers and consultants can actually easily use. Um, but there are many scientists that are working on this, and hopefully in the near future we have those tools. Um, as far as the tools that farmers use um, for, for creating zone maps, there are um, service providers um, have those tools that can create simple zone maps. Um, but as far as guiding you know, variable rate applications, I think we still um, have some, some way to go. Um, so now um, I think there are some reasons that um, these maps are not widely used. Uh, actually, many, many reasons, but I just want to um, mention a little bit on the agronomic side of it. So with um, algorithms that uh, we use for now is to um, zone, uh, create zones and the rate for the zone is still based on uh, a lot of time based on uh, yield goal method which use one um, unit nitrogen requirement for the whole state and that brings a lot of uncertainties in your variable uh, map prescription maps and that reduces the the value of variable rate applications. And there are prediction models um, that you can use, for example, CropSyst um, in Washington state. Um, I think Dr. Dave Huggins has a lot of research on that. I may need to invite Dr. Huggins to talk <laughs> about CropSyst um, system use in, the, um, in Washington state. So uh, I guess um, one of the things I think of big data is just all this data that's, that people can collect. How do, how do they manage <laughs> that? How, how, uh, there's one thing to figure out what it means, but how do you, I mean, I, I sit down with a spreadsheet from a couple of years of a small plot and I'm already overwhelmed and now you're getting this data on little segments. How, how is all that managed? Absolutely. That's one of the main reasons that the big data is not widely used. Big data, you cannot manage back big data using spreadsheets. Big data is not be able to handle by regular uh, softwares and uh, statistics. Um, it requires more sophisticated servers, more sophisticated database, more sophisticated analytical uh, methods. Um, and you need really put all those pieces of information collected using different sensors um, and tools. Um, you need to put, together, put them together and do some sophisticated uh, mathematical and statistical and economical, all those kind of <laughs> analyticals together and, um, and produce knowledge that you can use. Um, not only that, but also you need tools 
to um, to be able to translate the knowledge into the usable uh, tools that farmers and consultants can use and can un- understand. So, um, but we don't have that. But um, I know in recent years, especially within this a few years, there are many, many uh, researchers realized this is a bottleneck of using those big data that we have the technology to collect um, so that there are many researchers are working toward this. And I recently, I am working with 15 universities and we just got a $4 million grant to get this work started. And um, yeah, I mean, it's... We are. I mean, it's it's not enough. Of course, it's super expensive to, to to do this. Um, but at least this this the grant can get us started. And I know there are many other groups have um, grants and and started working on this as well. So um, hopefully, in the near future, we work together and, you know, um, move this forward as quick as we can. Okay. Dave, Hyeng gave you a little nod to talk about Cropsys, but I also wonder, um, you, you do have used a lot of these zone mapping things on the Cook Farm. If you could just briefly talk about uh, Cropsys and your experience on the Cook Farm. Yeah, and uh, just uh, kind of reiterating what Hyeng uh, just mentioned, um, you know, we're kind of in the, the fourth revolution of agriculture now, digital agriculture. And I was just reading an article where, you know, farmers are really grappling with how to manage the kinds of data that are available. And us researchers are also, you know, trying to grapple with that issue as well. So I've hired an eco-informaticist. Basically, this is a person that's able, that has the expertise to actually work with data in the cloud and elsewhere, you know, in terms of getting beyond the spreadsheets that we all grew up with from the standpoint of our research and going to the next generation here in terms of how to manage data and the computer computing power, et cetera, that's needed to do that. And um, Haying mentioned Cropsys. Cropsys is a model that was developed at Washington State University by Claudio Stockel. And this is what's called a process-oriented model. And basically, this is going to take data information about your soils and about your other environmental characteristics. It's going to combine that with weather data at a daily time step. It's what's called to drive the model and actually can then be used to predict different outcomes that you might get across the field or across the region. And the actual application that we used it for uh, most recently is looking at flex crop options. And this is where we just wanted to predict what might be the potential yield of spring canola versus spring pea, in this case, versus spring wheat in February before you actually planted them across the region. And so this was, we used Cropsys basically to take historic weather data and to apply it to the the model and then to grow the crop in the model itself and then to map it regionally to see, okay, what would be the expected forecasted yields across this region for those three crops. And we would have that available for February. And it was interesting, February was kind of a good mark for us. We did this also starting with the fall before, right on through, and month by month we went through and and, uh, re-ran the model to see what kinds of results we would get. And to see that we knew that as we accumulated more precipitation, et cetera, that would be unique for that year that our model forecast should become 
better, right? And so we've actually found that by February 1st, we could actually do pretty well in predicting the future crop yields by about, we could explain about 70% of the yield variability by February 1st. And this just comes back to the fact that we rely so much on stored soil water, et cetera. And so um, uh, so we produced maps like that, uh, that we think could be used as a forecast for farmers to actually look and see, well, what's the expectation? And you could also append to that data from February 1st, you can look at the historic data again to look at scenarios through the, for the rest of the season, right, to grow the crop. And you can actually look at the past 30 years of data, basically of weather data, and apply that to the model and get a range then of yield expectations for each one of those yields across the region. Again, and that can give you an idea of what the range is and how much variability you might expect in terms of that particular yield. So this is just one application of a process-oriented model, Cropsist. Cropsist predicts all kinds of other things besides yield, everything from carbon sequestration to water use and other kinds of factors. So I, I think so in the future, I think some of the secrets in terms of the use of those big data are being able to couple that with process-oriented models like this, and then also to check them, <laughs> you know, from the standpoint of the, through the season, and this is where some of the remote sensing data, et cetera, are currently used um, to be able to actually combine with the model to, to kind of true up the model in terms of, well, what's the current state of affairs? Well, you can use remote sensing as a strategy to do that and to basically correct the model as you go along in terms of what's actually going on regionally throughout, uh, well, throughout the region. So that's just one application. There's many others that could be explored at all kinds of scales from regional right on through to, you know, foot by foot on your farm. Yeah. I know I um, spent a little time in Australia working with a model called AppSim, which is a similar mm -hmm. process. Yep. And, um, for my use, I've made a lot of assumptions <laughs> because you could put all sorts of data in there, but I just didn't have it. So um, that's where big data could really help, I would suppose, yeah. make these models more accurate. Than yeah, you, yeah, you, you know, model validation or corroboration, sometimes we say, is extremely important. You have to, and, you know, our models are only as good as the kinds of, of data that we have to check them, et cetera, and to basically formulate the model and to make improvements on them. So there's this back and forth that goes on in terms of, yeah, we modeled, but what was the outcome? <laughs> and how well did the model do? And we have a, a ways to go there, even with Cropsys that we've worked with for decades now in terms of of um, those models um, being extremely, extremely accurate, as accurate as we'd like them to be. And so I think that's always something to take into consideration in terms of the use of any data or any model that's a forecasting model in terms of what is the uncertainty around it. And this is something that we pressed modelers to give us more you know, information on is, okay, we see what you predicted, but what's the uncertainty around that number? And it's always good to really place that number then in this context of the uncertainty around it. Okay, that's the number, but what is the plus and minus of that that you might be trying to predict that uncertainty around it is extremely important to, to recognize in any model. Okay, time to move on to our next question, which comes to you, Dave. And this one's on um, kind of... Uh, soil, health, soil, nutrients. Uh, the question is, on, on hillsides and knobs that have lighter colored and less productive soil, what elements have been stripped away? And is there any way to repair damaged soil in our lifetimes? Yeah, a great question. Of course, uh, as we look across our Palouse Hills, we see lots of different kinds of situations with respect to, to soil. And that shows up, of course, in our crops themselves. You can see it. You can visualize it. And of course, 
a lot of that comes back to just the history of, of soil erosion over time and also what those soils started with, with respect to the native condition. There was quite a bit of variability even then. And so, you know, our farming, of course, has, has also impacted our soils over time. And, you know, I still remember at a, at a field day asking the question, well, what's the most important soil health variable? And a farmer saying, well, about six feet of it. <laughs> and, and there's nothing that beats depth <laughs> when you come to a cropping system that really relies on stored soil moisture, right, to drive crop yield. And so depth is critical to us in terms of the, I would say, number one soil property. And of course, erosion has robbed us of some of that depth, particularly in those upland positions where everything is departing that landscape position. On the summit, everything's moving away from that and down the slope, right? So that doesn't get replenished. And so those areas, you can see where we've lost depth. That's where our yield potentials have gone down and that's where we struggle in. And as we get below about two feet or so of soil depth, of rooting depth, actual rooting depth that we can have, then our yields start to really plummet. And it's difficult to regain soil depth. I mean, you can look at soil formation and it's pretty slow. So it's not going to happen in your lifetime. It's going to be generations, you know, to build it back unless you are more proactive about it. And I've seen farmers, you know, haul dirt back up on top of the hillside and and, and up on those summit positions to, to increase the yields in those locations. That's, a, that's quite an effort in order to try to, to do that. But that Soil depth is something that's very difficult to replace. The other thing, of course, is declines in soil organic matter. And, of course, as we lose productive capacity on those summit positions, we lose the capacity to return residues and roots to those systems. And so it becomes harder to rebuild organic matter over time to replenish those. And and we try to target about 3% organic matter. It's a good target, soil organic matter, to try to look at you know having the benefits of organic matter that are there. And of course, organic matter is a storehouse for nutrients, like you mentioned before. And uh, everything from you know the nitrogen and phosphorus to some of the micronutrients as well. And um, But we do see those locations depleted in organic matter. They're not going to have the same nutrient supplying power as other locations in the field. We should be watching them in terms of some of the micronutrients, et cetera. We should also be looking at them from the perspective of potassium, which also tends to be showing up in some of our, our uh, soil tests as being, as being um, um, uh, something that we should be thinking about in terms of fertilization in those locations. That has to be balanced by their productive capacity, <laughs> again. And some of the economic returns, at least short term, may not actually uh, support some of the inputs that we're talking about in terms of those locations. Okay. Haying, you have anything you'd like to add to that or, or dispute about that? <laughs> I just want to add to uh, you know, the impact of losing topsoil to um, a little bit. So when you lose topsoil, you are punished by many different ways. Not only you lose nutrients in from the topsoil, but also you are losing the depth of soil. So for example, if you lose soil, you know, and then your soil depth reduced from four feet to three feet or from five feet to four feet. And the the power of the soil can store water is reduced uh, big time, and the the water storage in in the plus is very important for yield. Uh, so I just want to add that. Okay, very good. Our next question for you, Haying, is: Could you have a brief update on the role of boron, zinc, phosphorus, and chloride in inland Pacific Northwest dryland wheat production? The role of each. 
and best time and form to apply, uh, sharing any knowledge of return on investment according to soil test and rate applied. Uh, let me start from phosphorus. So as far as function of phosphorus, phosphorus is a, com- is a structure component for um, ADP and ATP, which are um, the, the um, which are the components that provide um, energy sources for plant physiological activities. Phosphorus is also a structure component for nucleic acid, coenzymes. Phosphorus is important for feed formation. Um, as far as um, fertilizer applications, we um, recommend phosphorus, soil test for phosphorus uh, for making decisions on phosphorus applications because the variability of uh, soil test phosphorus does not vary a lot from year to year. So we recommend every you test soil phosphorus um, every three years is good enough. And um, as far as um, uh, soil um loss of phosphorus from soils. Um, so phosphorus did not get lost through uh, leaching as unless you have um, soils that are saturated with phosphorus or you have sandy soils. So the main loss of phosphorus is through um, through um, erosion. So that's uh, you know another thing that you want to try to minimize the, the soil loss. Um, and also, um, in the plus, soil test phosphorus vary a lot uh, in different slope loca- uh, locations. Um, and maybe you can save some money from variable rate of phosphorus applications. Um, as far as um, testing methods, we are also thinking maybe it's time for us to look at um, different soil test methods because over the years, soil um, chemical properties, for example, soil pH and soil organic matter um, have changed a lot. And the, the current soil testing methods for phosphorus that we're using uh, may be not appropriate anymore, but we are not sure we need more research on that. And um, we also need to revisit um, the read uh, for phosphorus recommendations and at any given level of um, of soil test phosphorus. Again, that's because uh, we don't know um, you know, the, the soil chemical uh, properties changed and the phosphorus fixation um, capabilities are also changed. So we need to revisit those. As far as micronutrients, we um, the soil tests for micronutrients are not as reliable as soil test methods for you know, macronutrients like nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. We normally recommend farmers to take samples from both soils and plant tissue um, to uh, from both bad areas and good areas. And, and by comparing soil and tissue tests in both good areas and bad areas, and then farmers can have a good idea of if they indeed had micronutrients deficiency. So as far as Functionality, um, boron is um, important um, 
in feed formation. Boron is involved in um, enzyme activity. Uh, enzyme activities. Boron is um, is important um, in cell cell wall uh, formation integrity. And zinc is also important in cell cell wall integrity. Um, and zinc and phosphorus kind of help each other with the, their functionality. As far as um, fertilizer applications uh, for zinc, um, you know, applying zinc um, at planting, um, band application is okay. I got some questions from farmers. Hey, can I apply zinc with my phosphorus? Do they react to each other and reduce their availability uh, with the rate that farmers apply for zinc, um, it doesn't really matter. You you could you can't do that. Uh, with boron applications, um, plants don't require a lot of boron. Um, too much of boron actually can be toxic to plants. That's why um, we don't recommend farmers to apply boron um, at seeding with band. Um, so uh, we not normally recommend farmers broadcast or foliar application uh, is also a common practice. Um, but um, as far as the agronomic benefit uh, from boron and zinc applications, we don't have enough local data to support um, the answers. Um, are they necessary or are they not? Uh, we need more research uh, in, in Washington State. We also need more research to establish uh, critical levels for soil tests and tissue tests. And you also ask um, chloride. Uh, so with chloride, the function of chloride in plant mainly um, is in um, plant osmotic balance or charge balance. With um, chloride deficiency, plants can have these physi physiological leaf spots, which can reduce yield if the 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 symptom is uh, is pronounced. And as far as fertilization, uh, we recommend farmers to take uh, soil test for chloride at two foot depth. If they find uh, the soil test chloride uh, more than 30 pounds per acre, they are good. They don't need to apply chloride. But if they, the soil test is between 10 to uh, 20 pounds per acre, farmers may need to apply 10 to 20 pounds of uh, chloride. But if the, the chloride um, test is less than 10 pounds per acre in the soil, uh, we recommend farmers to apply uh, 30 pounds per acre of, of chloride. Um, as far as when they should apply, uh, we found that um, fall application is better than spring application and better than um, foliar application. Okay. Dave, do, do you have anything to add to that? or? Uh yeah, I'll add a little bit just about uh, potassium. I think this is uh, an element we're, you know, increasingly looking at more so from the standpoint of potential deficiencies. And this is more for the, the high rainfall areas, not so much for the dry, the real dry land areas. But, uh, but um, you know, potassium is just essential from the standpoint of, of, of water use efficiency. Uh, and uh, uh, it basically uh, helps to control the openings, the stomates in the plants themselves. So these are the openings that allow carbon dioxide in, but at the same time they let water out. And so 
potassium helps to to regulate that opening in terms of how open or closed it is. And so it's essential then from the standpoint of, of water use efficiency. And uh, I think this is a, an element that uh, we're looking a little bit more closely at in terms of of uh, some of the, the upland areas where we think we're, we're looking at more and more deficiency issues. And just to add to what Haying uh, said as well, um, you know, in terms of, of looking at critical nutrient uh, concentrations in tissue, much of this research hasn't taken place on the Palouse. It's, we're borrowing data from other locations in the world, basically, to try to come up with numbers here. But as everyone knows, in agriculture, everything's unique, and there's a little bit of danger in terms of borrowing data from other locations to apply them directly. And so we'd like to have our own information from the standpoint of, well, what are the critical nutrient levels in plants for plant tissue testing? And how does that relate to our soil tests, you know, in terms of what we're seeing now? And that's a little bit of the research we're now conducting. At the Cook Agronomy Farm, we have a lot of variability in, in uh, micronutrients there, and we're trying to then make the link between some of the tissue tests that we have to the soil test and seeing if there's, um, you know, building the database basically to try to assess deficiencies or sufficiencies of those nutrients. Okay, so I guess the message from both of you is there's still a lot of work to be done in this area of micronutrients, uh, and that work is continuing. Let's go on to the next question. This one for Dave. Um, could someone discuss enhanced nitrogen and rainfall efficiency from continued direct seed with very limited tillage only to break up heavy straw? We feel that our old formulas are not correct, but they do give fine results, far above what the formula predicts, and the update would be appreciated. <laughs> That's a good question, too. And and Haying touched a little bit on this already, but... But, uh, you know, it's important, I think, you know, from my perspective, to recognize that a lot of these equations and formulas that we use are guidelines. This is where you start in terms of trying to assess, you know, your nutrient management program. You don't end with those. You've got to, you, you modify from there on out and you recognize that there, there's a lot of different uh, scenarios out there that that formula isn't going to be able to address and, and, uh, and do so in a systematic, you know, and predictable way across every piece of, if, and, and some of the elements of that uh, that we have tried to address is when we went to more direct seed systems, we started to look at uh, at how nitrogen might be released from organic matter through mineralization. And so what is the you know supplying power then under no-till as compared to a conventional tillage system? And this is where we started to, to use the number 17 times soil organic matter percentage in order to come up with an estimate again, a guide towards, well, what would the expectations be in terms of your organic matter being able to supply more nitrogen. Of course, and then that compared to 20, you know, for conventional tillage, recognizing that tillage basically uh, helps to cycle some of the, the nitrogen and organic matter more quickly and more rapidly. But over time, your no-till systems will build organic matter. And also, you're going to be building up what we call more active organic matter, organic matter that turns over more quickly over time and is able to release all kinds of nutrients uh, in addition to nitrogen. So so this is not a, a stable situation in terms of, okay, that's that where you can just apply one number to and be correct. There's other factors too, like uh, soil pH that impact how much mineralization happens. And as pH goes down, the mineralization from soil organic matter of nitrogen tends to be slowed up. And so that 
also impacts then how much nitrogen we might be getting from soil organic matter. And the other big factor to me is just our unit nitrogen requirement. And everyone probably knows, okay, and this gets back to the efficiency issues you were talking about. Um, the the 2.7 pounds of nitrogen per bushel of, of soft white winter wheat was derived from um, assumptions and tests of efficiencies. And it, it actually assumes an uptake efficiency of nitrogen of 50%. Well, what if you're better than that or less than that, then that changes what that actual number is in the field. And so, again, this is a guide that gets you started. It's an assumption that's made in terms of efficiencies made. But if you're increasing efficiencies through the use of precision ag, et cetera, then I would expect that your efficiencies are actually going up and that that number may not be, you might be much less than that. And then other locations where you might be over that in your field. And so and there, so there's definitely differences across the field itself in terms of what that actual number is, that unit nitrogen requirement in terms of in any given year for that matter. Uh, but we can impact that through our nitrogen management. And now, you know, with the addition of, of stabilized nitrogen options and other kinds of and timings and precision ag, uh, we have tools in the toolbox to try to increase those efficiencies and change those numbers. Again, the numbers are guides. The equations are guides. You go from there to basically fine-tune over time. And this is, comes back to what Haying was talking about. We need w ways to evaluate how well did we do. And that's where some of the yield monitoring, the protein sensors, et cetera, on the combine, the remote sense data in terms of normalized difference, uh, red edge data can be used to basically calculate how much nitrogen was exported from the field, compare that to nitrogen inputs that you may have for fertilizer, and to use those ratios to assess how well did we do in any given portion of the field. So I, I really do want to emphasize that that evaluation piece is critical towards beginning to fine-tune your nitrogen management within the field itself. And we do have the tools and the technology to do that now. I do get kind of the sense that part of this question also is, is nitrogen efficiency and water efficiency improved in direct seed systems? And my sense is it is, but it, it depends on where you are. You know, early on, it actually maybe ties up a little nitrogen and then later. So how how many years has it been? Have you been in the system? Is that is that true? And one is will direct seed systems in the long run be more nitrogen and water use efficient? And how do you decide uh, how to how to change that management as you go from a, a conventional to a, a direct seed system? Yeah, you, you know, Drew, it's a it's a complicated question, and and you know, in terms of water use efficiency as well as nitrogen use efficiency, some of the factors that are contributing to that. Uh, one is just the increase in in atmospheric carbon dioxide levels. So as the world, <laughs> and thus included, uh, increase carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That's a called a CO2 fertilization effect, and that in turn results in increases in yield and yield potential and water use efficiency. Predictions are upwards of 10 to 15% increases in yield just due to carbon dioxide increases in the atmosphere itself. So there's one huge factor from the standpoint of just water use efficiency. And in terms of soil, certainly as you're longer in a system in no-till and you build up organic matter levels, I like to, 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 to put it more in terms of this is building up your buffering capacity to meet 
variations in weather that might occur. You get the June rainfall, for instance, and now you have enough organic matter there with the waters and the temperatures to release more nitrogen in a in a, in a, at the same time that your crops are actually needing it because they just got more rain. So from my perspective, it's more of a, a buffering capacity in the system that you're building and that can help you manage from a soils perspective by having that organic matter there to manage some of those variations in, in weather that we're experiencing more of, quite frankly, in terms of our spring conditions. Okay. Haing, do you have anything to add to that? I just want to add that with big data, um, then use of big data, we can actually predict the release um, of nitrogen from soil mineralization much better um, in using, you know, for any given um, nitrogen management practices, any given soil, any given uh, weather conditions, um, you know, we can predict um, better uh, in terms of how much nitrogen is available in the soil. Okay. One more question uh, for today's uh, episode, and let's start off with you, Haying. Is there such a thing as an appropriate amount of nitrogen per foot to be left over after harvest of dryland soft wheat, soft white wheat, uh, winter wheat, in an intermediate rainfall zone? Uh, we do not want to leave too much, and we wonder if there's such a thing as leaving too little. So with soft white winter wheat, uh, you want to use, um, provide enough nitrogen to reach the yield potential. If you have enough nitrogen to reach yield potential, is very likely you also reach your protein potential at 10.5%. So um, if you see 10.5% of green protein concentration, you it's very likely that your nitrogen management was good enough, right? So if you have um, the protein concentration higher than that, you may just have too much of nitrogen. So as far as how much nitrogen you should um, leave in the soil after harvest, is it's hard to say. For example, if you look at um, the soil nitrogen test in the first foot, at harvest, you may see a lot of nitrogen in the first foot. That's because nitrogen mineralization happens throughout the growing season, and not all this nitrogen uh, that's mineralized from soil organic matter is used by current crop, especially the nitrogen that's mineralized in later of growing season. They, they're not used by the crop and that nitrogen get accumulated in the soil. And how much get accumulated in the soil really depends on many factors. You know, how, how, what is the uh, percentage of your soil organic matter, what type of soil organic matter you have, what kind of weather conditions, you know, what kind of soil moisture and soil uh, chemical properties. Um, and all this impact how much nitrogen could be accumulated in that layer, right? So as far as how much nitrogen should be left in deeper soil depth, um, then, you know, deeper than three feet, uh, we... Unfortunately, if you grow um, hard red wheat, uh, you do need some nitrogen left over there. So we found very good relationship between how much nitrogen is left deeper than three feet uh, with uh, protein concentration. Because with hard red, you want 
a high protein con concentration in the grain. So um, you do need some nitrogen left in, in the deeper soil depth. Um, so, but if you uh, have uh, too much of nitrogen left, um, that's not economical for farmers, right? And if you have too much nitrogen left in the soil, you may think of um, considering uh, using deep-rooted crops in the next year so that that crop can take up the nutrients in deeper soil depth that's left over by, by the wheat. And we also found that if you have more than 100 pounds per acre left in the soil, um, by the time you plant next crop, it's very likely that you don't need uh, fertilizer applications um, for the next crop anymore uh, because it's likely that you don't have yield response to nitrogen anymore. Okay. So for, for a, a soft white, do you want as little nitrogen left over as possible after your wheat crop? Is that... you? So maybe there isn't anything is too little. It's very interesting. So we did look at um, soft the relationship between uh, how much nitrogen left in the in the deeper soil depth uh, with green protein concentration with soft white. Um, we did not find a very good correlation. So um, and of course you you don't want to you know uh, over apply because you don't want to end up with high. Uh, protein concentration. Okay. Dave, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a, a couple things that are real important to consider, and, and one is anyone that's gone out and actually after harvest and sampled with depth to try to see, well, how much did I leave behind? Sampling itself is not an easy thing to do to get a representative type of sample for your for your field, right? You'll find quite a bit of variability across the field in terms of how much is left. Also, we've found that you can, particularly if you banded nitrogen in the spring, for instance, for a spring wheat crop or another crop, uh, some of those residual bands might show up in your sampling after harvest simply because, you know, basically the crop dried out in the surface uh, with use of water and you stranded nitrogen in those bands still. And so we've found upwards of 300 pounds of nitrogen because we hit a band <laughs> right in that top foot. And so sampling becomes an issue, particularly that top foot and recommendations there are to sample across basically the row in order to, to get located. So you're not just hitting a band and saying, oh my gosh, because that's not representative of the field, right? You want to get a sample that that actually captures the places in between those bands, et cetera, and to, to put it into more of a proportionally correct uh, type of sample. So sampling becomes important. And uh, I think like Haying mentioned, if you, you know, if you had a drought situation and or you apply too much nitrogen, you really should consider crops that are good scavengers of nitrogen to follow, like canola is one of those, you know, very excellent at scavenging nitrogen up. Or consider some of our, our hard red weeds, et cetera, that require, you know, higher protein levels and consequently, you know, more nitrogen in the profile to help promote some of those some of those protein goals that we have. Okay. Well, we can't get through the remainder of our questions because we've run out of time. But uh, I think we've had a very good discussion of those questions we did have. And I really appreciate having you two on my inaugural episode of Ask an Expert podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks Thank for you invite. for having us. 
Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on future episodes, please email me at drew.lyon, that's L-Y-O-N, at wsu.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications and the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time.